Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Netflix says the acceleration of COVID cases gives concern. Our news correspondent, Sarah King, will join us with the very latest as the chief medical officer sounds the alarm. So if you're going, planning to go out two nights of the week, maybe just go out once. If you're planning to have 10 people over the house for a particular event, maybe just have five. Uh, during this period, a very, very high transmission. Rents continue to rise as availability plummets, according to a new Daft.ie report. Fianna Fáil Senator Lisa Chambers and Labour Senator Rebecca Moynihan are here. With referees right across the country now saying enough is enough when it comes to abuse, we ask is now the time for a silent sideline. And later, Miss Ireland winner Pamela Uba will be here to discuss her job on the front line during the pandemic and her charity work now focusing on direct provision. As always, we want to hear from you, the viewer. Get in touch on Twitter on our hashtag TonightVMTV. As the National Public Health Emergency Team said there has been a significant increase in COVID-19 cases amongst almost all age groups. A little earlier, I spoke to our news correspondent, Zara King. I began by asking her about the rises in COVID-19 cases and the growing number of hospitalisations. Yes, that's right, Claire. So I suppose that the real question last week when we saw those 3,000 cases per day rolling through was what impact would that have on hospitals? We know, for example, that COVID patients mainly find themselves being hospitalised before on day seven of their illness and onwards. So it was really seven days after those cases came through that we would see the impact that that would have. Ronan Glynn telling the press conference today that now they're seeing on average around 60 admissions to hospital per day, of which six are going into the intensive care unit. So it does seem that the numbers that were predicted in terms of uh, 25 per 1,000 cases now tracking and certainly increasing and causing an impact on the front line. And we're not just seeing rising numbers here in Ireland, but it's actually right across Europe, isn't it? New data has suggested. And Europe now being at the global epicentre of this pandemic. Yeah, Claire, that's right. So Dr. Ronan Glynn pointing to that, saying that it is very concerning and he speaks about the fact that the World Health Organisation has expressed concerns about the fact that we could see another half a million COVID-related deaths before February if we continue on this trajectory. But he says, of course, that doesn't have to be inevitable, that we do have the opportunity to turn this around. Ireland has the eighth highest 14-day average in Europe at the moment. But in terms of that idea of turning it around, Claire, obviously we've heard from Neffet over the last uh, two to three weeks uh, calling on people to go back to basics, reduce their social contacts. Uh, Dr Houlihan asked today about that saying how's that working out? Are people actually doing it? Are you seeing a difference? And uh, Neffa conceding today that really they're not seeing the change or the impact that they really needed to see over the last couple of weeks. He made that appeal again today to people but accepting that uh, really it isn't making an enormous difference or as much as they would have expected certainly in the last couple of weeks. And Sarah what about the situation in our schools? Um, Antigen testing 
now being used there. Um, in what capacity, what was Dr. Ronan Glynn saying about that today? Well, Claire, we're expecting to hear over the next couple of days how antigen testing is going to work and how it will be rolled out within the school system. I mean, today the INTO were telling us, for example, that there are uh, 6,000 primary school children out of school related to COVID today. So we're expecting to get a bit of a framework as to how that's going to work uh, over the next couple of days. But Dr. Ronan Glynn is uh, speaking about the antigen testing and saying that parents shouldn't be using antigen testing as a green light. He's saying basic infection prevention control measures uh, must apply, uh, particularly where there are symptoms. So he's saying even, for example, where there are symptoms that uh, people are obviously being asked to stay at home. He's saying that that could on the long term prevent uh, the spread of RSV and things like influenza in the classroom setting as well. So uh, certainly Neffet saying that look, antigen testing won't be a green light uh, but we are expecting to hear how that will be rolled out, as I say, over the coming days. Now separately, just in relation to testing, Claire, uh, reports from some people this evening that they were having difficulty uh, booking PCR tests through the HSE website. At one point we checked and there were no available tests but uh, this evening the HSE uh, confirming to us that they do have availability um, at a number of sites. In a statement uh, briefly this evening, they said that there is availability on a range of sites. They say a percentage of tests are reserved for GPs. They say some of these will free up tomorrow if not used and uh, for midnight slots will become available uh, for the following day. But uh, upon looking at it again, uh, there does seem to be a number of tests available at a number of sites up and down the country. Obviously some places uh, busier than others, Claire, but uh, we know, for example, Test and Trace has been at one of the busiest points it's ever been at since the start of this pandemic. And clearly a demand for those tests. Okay, Zara, King at the Department of Health. Thank you for joining us with that update tonight. Now, rents are now rising at an annual rate of 6.8%, according to property website daft.ie. The Daft report said the average monthly rent nationwide between July and September was €1,516, which was up 2.6% in the space of just three months. It found that there were just 1,460 homes to rent on its website as of November 1st, the lowest number since its quarterly series began back in 2006. Well, here to discuss is Finnafall Senator Lisa Chambers, Labour Senator Rebecca Moynihan, and via Skype, Business Post journalist Killian Woods and estate agent Owen Riley. And I'd like to come to you first, Killian, on those figures. They're quite stark, really, and rents right across the country um, have risen by 6.8% up to the third quarter of this year. It's not just an urban problem, is it? We're, we're seeing it. Uh, in fact, those rent rises even greater outside Dublin since the pandemic began. Yeah, so this is a problem in the cities in general. So like, it's not just that Dublin. Dublin actually has some of the, one of the lowest levels of inflation rents at the moment. It is 2.6% going up. Now it's at €2,000 a month that so you're roughly paying to pay for a rental, new rental in Dublin at the moment. But we're seeing in Galway, in Limerick, in Cork, in Waterford and, and those sort of cities that it's just rising much more rapidly. Like in Waterford alone, we're seeing rents go up at 10% year on year between that kind of July to September period between 2020 and 2021. And it just comes back to the fact that there's uh, in cities about 70 to 80 percent fewer homes to rent. That's where it comes down to. It comes down to not necessarily just the supply problem, but that there's a lack of supply on the rental market at the moment to about 2,700 properties over the whole country. Yeah, that scarcity of supply is really something that jumps out in this report. It's down 65 percent on last year. So what accounts for this drop in, in housing stock? It's just people coming back to the office and coming back to cities at the moment. We're seeing a lot of employers now saying, we want you back in the office. And that's really where it's coming from. 
we're seeing that you know, people just need to get back into cities because for work and because they've been pressured to, right, rightly or wrongly at the moment. So maybe we'll see that way in a bit. But last, it's not necessarily a fair comparison to say the last the July to September of this, this year is comparable to last year due to the lockdown restrictions we were seeing. Um, thanks for that, Killian. because I want to come to our panel now. Um, Lisa Chambers, to you first on that. Um, we are seeing this move, aren't we, that people are moving out of Dublin uh, um, and, and we're, as a result, we're seeing rental rises right around the country, that scarcity of supply really being a big issue. Um, what are you going to do about it? Yes, I mean, look, it, it, it's, it, we absolutely need to acknowledge that there's a huge pressure on rental properties and it's not just a Dublin problem, it is right across the country um, and it's been building over many years and it's, it is at, I think, its peak right now. Uh, what the Minister is doing and, and has done so far is introduced a cost rental model, which is the Vienna housing model we've talked about for many years. Uh, that's in operation now. Some of those cost rental units have already been delivered are, are operational in Dublin and that means basically discounted rent. So you're getting a rental property for currently 40 to 50% below market value, but a minimum of 20 25% below the market value. So that's been provided directly by, by those, cost rental, those cost rental homes. Just to um, clarify on that, these are new bills that are cost rental, so yeah. they're affordable. Mm -hmm. So they are coming on stream. The demand is huge for them. They are, but I mean, this is something that's been sought for many years um, by all parties. It has been delivered by a Fianna Fáil housing minister in the last year. And, and we're just in government this, this last year. So that's happened and it's been, I think it should be welcomed, I would imagine, by, yeah, by all parties. It is, it is for people who are earning a certain amount. So not everyone is even going to fall into that bracket that they can avail of cost rental. Well, not there's everybody needs to fall into that bracket. Yes, but there's you a know? lot of people out there right now who are paying like those Dublin rents that we're mm -hmm. talking about, 2,000 euro a month. Yeah, no, I, and I, I acknowledge that, but you, when you ask the question, what is the Minister for Housing doing about this and the government, you know, he has brought in a cost rental scheme that didn't exist before that. Um, and there is going to be 18,000 units de delivered over the lifetime of the Housing for All policy. Uh, secondly, um, a €4 billion euro investment by the government into housing, the Housing for All policy. It's the largest ever state investment in housing. Um, and we're going to have an affordable purchase scheme as well on, on public land. So there's a lot happening. We're a year into this government. Um, we have a new housing minister and already... Um, he's put into action a lot of the policies that were promised before the election. So, I mean, it's, it's a start. There's a long way to go, but they're actually making an impact today. Yeah, uh, there is a long way. There certainly is a long way to go when you look at those um, rental figures and what people are paying just to live in a place and, and not even own a place. That's, the, that's what they're paying as a, as a monthly rent. Um, and I know that the opposition have really pushed for this idea around rent caps and, and, mm -hmm. and help for tenants. The government is listening on that. There is something going before Cabinet tomorrow that it won't rise above 2%. What do you think of that measure that's being brought in, Rebecca? I, I think linking it to CPI and 2% is a good long-term measure. And if that had been implemented, let's say, in 2016, we wouldn't be in the situation that we're in now. Just to go back and address the issue um, of cost rental, absolutely, we do need cost rental homes. And I think it's very welcome. But it's 18,000 over the lifetime of the government. That's only 2,000 a year. And in terms of the demand for rental properties and the demand for what's coming on stream, um, cost, that cost rental isn't going to cover it. So you're looking at what some private um, investors are charging. And you look at places like Player Wills, for example, in my own area, um, or the Clonliffe Road development, which are built to rent. Some of them have starting prices of about either 1300 
uh, to fifteen hundred for a one bed or a studio, and that's completely unaffordable rent in terms of being linked to people's inflation. You're also looking at other um, companies, and, and, and Killian had a really good article a couple of months ago in, in, in relation to build to rent that were deliberately left empty by the investor funds in order to keep rents high. So you see that happening in some of the developments again in my own area down in Clancy Key, and the government could and should have introduced a vacant homes tax. We potentially have between 150 and 200,000 derelict homes around the country that could and should be brought back into use. We need to have some punitive measures in place to get people to actually bring them back into use and a vacant homes tax would be very welcome in, in, in terms of that. Um, invest, investors, invest, investors buy properties will sometimes leave them empty. Like I know most people We'll have an example of a house down the road from them that's been lying empty, somebody used to live in for a number of years, but they can't find out who owns it. And it's been it's fallen into dereliction. We have to have a system of bringing them back into use, but with a carrot approach to try and offer some incentives, okay. but also a stick approach that if you don't bring this back into use, you're going to lose it. Okay, does, does that need to be toughened up? The idea that we would have rental proper, properties lying empty as rents are rising and people need somewhere to live and nothing has been done about that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean, we would all agree that if there's vacant properties that are available, that they should be brought back into use, but it's not as straightforward. Some of those properties could be somebody that's gone into a nursing home, um, maybe a property that's that's not fit for rent, and the person that owns it can't afford to bring it back. So we need to find other ways. It's not just about punishing people, because there, there can be... blocks and the empty rentals that aren't being rented out um, and that's know, something, in, I mean, in the city centre, that's in something, urban centres. There yeah, is I mean, an issue there. That, that's something certainly to look at, but it's not a blanket. Every vacant property is a problem and that it's, you know we have to be careful in how we approach this because there's a story behind all of I, it. I, I, but I, also I, to say as well that the 18,000 units for the cost rental, that's just one element of the housing plan. There's also the 33,000 annual completions that are committed to in the Housing for All plan. That's affordable housing as well, delivered on state land. It's not, so there's lots of elements to the plan and also to acknowledge, to be fair to the Minister, you know, we didn't really have a huge amount of construction last year. We now know we can see okay. construction is picking up and we've seen an increase in the number of commencements in properties that are actually getting built um, from August to September up by 40%. So construction, thankfully, is back up and running and that's going to help us deliver more homes as well. Okay, well, look, I want to bring um, Owen Riley in on this. Owen, you're an estate agent, city centre. We're talking about those rising rents. We're talking about those really high prices, in fact, if somebody does want to rent. And I'm sure you're renting out some pretty high-end um, homes there. What are people willing to pay? More than €2,000 for a one-bed? Those sort of prices, is that what we're seeing in the capital right now? Uh, our average rental value um, this year is about 2200 per month. Um, now, we do operate in, in the more prime areas of Dublin. Um, but as Killian touched on there, we, what we have now is a supply-demand mismatch. And uh, unfortunately, in recent months, the accommodation crisis has deepened as offices have reopened and professionals who left uh, Dublin during the COVID crisis last year have returned. And this is happening at a time where uh, the supply of homes on the market continues to deplete at alarming levels. Um, half of our sellers over the last uh, two years are landlords exiting the market. And most of our buyers are, are our own occupiers. So unfortunately, this crisis is going to get worse now before it gets better. Is there a problem with vacant apartments? I think it would be fair to say, and, and Killian has done did some good reporting on this, um, where some blocks, particularly maybe in the Docklands area, were, were vacant for a time. But 
Uh, I'm working on some of these developments uh, myself and certainly the goal of myself and my clients is to rent these units as, as quickly as we can. So I think why, it's a very, why very small... Why is it all taking a while then? Why, why is it not happening sooner that it, it's come to this, that there seemed to be a problem with it? Uh, well, these apartments tend to be uh, completed in phases. Um, so as soon as they're uh, ready to be let, uh, and we've seen a, a marked increase in demand since the since the start of the sm summer, which has kind of accelerated now in, in recent months as offices uh, have reopened. So I, I don't think it's a, it's a major issue at this time. OK, Killian, um, just to bring you in on this, the defence from government is to get supply going, and that will mean rents will come down. But do you argue that housing supply may not actually solve the issue of rents that we're currently seeing? Well, that's what research from across Europe and worldwide would show that roughly a 1% increase in the stock of any type of housing, rental or to buy, would drop prices by between 1.5 and 2%. In Germany, we've seen examples of it even lower than less than rents dropping by less than a percent for a 1% increase in stock. I, I suppose it's important to state that like, we, it's kind of simplified, and even I unfortunately simplified myself into being a supply problem. What we really have is a, is a housing, housing affordability crisis at the moment, which is a lot of homes are coming to the market now that just aren't fit for purpose for what people can afford to rent, which is why they're sitting there. I think there's a great report done by Ronan Lyons for the Irish Institutional Property that showed the break-even cost that it is that takes these funds or takes these developers to build at the moment. So the, the, base, the, the baseline of break-even cost for a two-bed apartment in Dublin at the moment is €450,000. At that rate, you'd have to charge €1,800 in rent a month to make the yield back, so for an investor to be interested. So that's, I think, where we see the problem is that the, the cost of building these apartments is just so high that they can't afford to drop the rents. It's not that, there's not that they're just holding them to drive the rents up. They actually can't afford to drop them. So what happens about that? Is that something we just have to accept, that even if we get all this supply going, that those prices are essentially baked into the system? Well, that is the long-term problem, isn't it? If all this essentially is coming to market at this level and it needs to be charging between 1,800 and 3,000 euro a month for in rents, like that, the 1,800 is the lower end of what the break-even. A lot of these apartments in Dublin City Centre will be costing up to 600,000 euros to develop and they, the prices of that will cost that much to build in high-rise developments. So, yeah, the problem is we could be baking in these prices if this is what it costs to build. So that's where there's, there's lack of give and that will supply actually solve the problem. We, Possibly not, because although, yes, it, in principle, it sounds like it makes sense, you know, if the prices are on, the rents are going to come down by about a percent for every percent of stock we increase, we need a lot of percentages of stock. OK. Um, people listening into that will find that all pretty depressing, Lisa, that um, despite all that you're talking about around the housing for all plan, the cost rental, slow as it is, you know, coming on stream for people who really need um, those homes, that it's not going to really make a huge difference. Well, I, I, if I could take what he's talking about are mainly apartments in Dublin city centre. I think that the housing for all policy and the plan that we have is housing for the whole country and it's not just about apartment blocks. Um, you know, we're looking at homes and three bed and four bed houses as well and in other areas of the country. So I think it will have an impact. Um, I'm not an expert on, on housing supply and demand, but 
it would, I would suggest that if there's more houses, um, it will make the market a bit easier for people purchasing. Um, but some people want to rent, some people want to buy. And also we need to make sure that we provide housing and, and good transport links. We've had issues around cost of building. We know that that's a problem and the planning system as well. And that's why the Taoiseach has committed to and tasked his office with a complete overhaul of the planning system to be completed in 12 months. We've never done this before. It's a monumental task. So we're hoping that that will make planning a little bit more streamlined. And then we have issues around materials. We know the cost of timber, for example, because of the forestry issue. So there is a lot of issues at play, but definitely the cost of the cost of materials currently is a problem. Okay. But we would hope that would level out. That's due to Brexit, the pandemic, and other factors as well that we we Although would hopefully. We know what comes, what goes up, rarely comes down very quickly. Uh, I just want to bring up a map of Ireland that's highlighting actually the top five rental counties outside of Dublin, um, animating out uh, now the counties that are we're seeing pretty high rents. Um, Wicklow is number one. 1,577 uh, euro on average rent a month there. In Kildare, it's 1,502 euro. To Meath, 1,473 euro. Louth, 1,355. And County Cork, 1,211 euro. You hear of those, um, those rents. Um, the idea of a rent freeze, Re Rebecca, it's something that has been dismissed by government. Do you think it's, it needs to be considered? Absolutely, and we've been calling for a three-year rent freeze just to stabilise rents um, for a time and for a period. So I think in, in addition to the long-term measures where we need to link them to inflation and, and or 2%, I think that's worthwhile over a long time period. But I think in the immediate period, we need a rent freeze. And besides those counties which have traditionally been high rents, you're looking at places like Leitrim has gone up 21.6%, Roscommon 20.4%, Mayo 20.1%. So actually the rental crisis has gone beyond the urban centres and it's gone right around the country. And if you had, for example, a rent freeze in place, you wouldn't be seeing those um, increases um, happening. And I think we need to make sure that renters' rights are also rebalanced. So th there's a big problem where it, there's non-compliance and the government has themselves said that there's non-compliance with RPZs um, because rents have gone up 7% countrywide. Um, renters are afraid to challenge uh, their landlord because there are so few rental properties that are there and we need to make sure that renters have greater and better tenancy rights than they currently have. On that one, Owen, just talking about you know rental rights and what tenants deserve um, and how much they're actually paying, what about this government intervention uh, capping rents and idea, uh, that idea around a rental freeze because of the crisis that we're in? I think the, the government's uh, recent interventions in the market have been quite chaotic. Uh, a couple of times in the last few months, they've uh, changed how uh, rents can be increased. So in July, they brought it in that it could only be increased in line with inflation. And when they didn't like what inflation was doing, they've now capped it at 2%. And this creates a lot of uncertainty for investors who, who deserve certainty. And uh, to just follow up on the point made about rent freeze, rent freeze will deepen the crisis. Um, very quickly. It will destroy the supply of homes um, to rent on the market throughout Ireland because more landlords will decide to exit the market. And investment funds, uh, whether we like them or not, in many cases they're making apartment uh, development viable uh, in urban areas in, in Ireland. And if they, uh, are not, if they have no certainty in the regulatory framework they're operating, uh, operating within, uh, then developments will be stalled and some of them won't happen at all. And if this rental cap... And, and another point I would make, uh, another I point I would make is that if, if we this... introduce... 
Sorry, just before Sorry. we go, I just want to get you on this because I think it's important. The rental cap that is going to be introduced at 2% or uh, at a max, will that not offer that certainty, that clarity um, that you're looking for? I think it will offer some certainty, but this, um, uh, this new bill that's been proposed on, on a rental freeze, um, a lot of our clients are, are fearful that if that is brought in, um, you know, uh, like the point I was trying to make there is that if a rent freeze comes in, it will destroy the supply and it will also lower standards because there is no incentive for landlords to improve the quality of their accommodation if there's a rental freeze uh, in place. And uh, as we know, we all need to make our properties more energy efficient. There's going to be no incentive for landlords to do that if a rent freeze comes in. Okay, some tenants may disagree with that, but we have to leave it there. And my thanks to Lisa and Rebecca here in the studio and to Killian and Owen who joined us on Skype. And coming up after the break, we take a look at the growing trend of incidents of abuse towards referees right across the country. Stay with us. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Welcome back. Abuse and threatening behaviour from the sidelines is on the rise, according to referees right across the country. Here now to discuss is entrepreneur Harry McCann, journalist Jen Hogan, Vice President of the Irish Soccer Referee Society, Sean Slattery, and via Skype, uh, referee Katie Kilban. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Sean, I want to start with you because um, how referees are being treated, it's led to cancellation of matches yeah. um, in the coming days. Can you tell us how it has come to this um, and what, what in fact is happening, why this action had to be taken. We received reports from games on Sunday. On Monday morning, we were, we were told by some of the members they were looking to possible withdrawal of services. They just felt they'd reach a breaking point on a number of issues and there was verbal abuse at, at a lot of games again on Sunday. So before we could meet the league itself, the North Dublin Schoolboy League, they themselves called off the games for the weekend. So there's 550 games affected with that league alone. Uh, we would have been looking for a meeting with them to discuss it. So it just it, like a breaking point had been reached. Yeah, so you say a breaking point. Just how bad have things got? What, what, what's happening? Well, a lot of times there's uh, abuse, verbal abuse, and it can come from spectators or managers, coaches. And what was happening was when the referees were sending in reports to various leagues, it's not just in that league, it's nationwide. There's disciplinary control panels in all leagues around the country. So what's happening, and this was just highlighted this week, 
is that the reports have been sent in and the sanctions that the FAI have in place, in a lot of, play, in a lot of times they weren't being acted on. So there was like small fines, small suspensions for especially repeat offenders. And that's what the feeling was like, what's the point in sending in these reports anymore if nothing's going to get done about them? You're saying verbal abuse and threats. Yeah. Were there physical attacks as well? Punches being thrown? There have been, uh, in our own members, we've had two assaults in the last six weeks, which resulted in uh, players getting suspended. But uh, yeah, there was referees hit by players. And there's other incidents that have been mentioned where a spectator hit a player in an under-15 game. And then there's also been comments from our members that they were verbally abused by spectators at games, kids' games as well. So what happened in that incident? A spectator came onto the pitch and attacked a referee? No, attacked a player in an under-15 game. Right. The, the two incidents with our members with assaults, they were actually hit physically in the games. The matches were abandoned. So it's come to a point that for many people, and in your job, you do it for the love of the game, yeah. that it's not worth it anymore. Well, we're trying to, there's big recruitment drives and um, with the FEI doing beginners courses and that. So the like of what's happened this week would certainly put people off, you know, with the publicity. We're trying to keep people in and we're just hoping that by, again, these, these sanctions are there, use them. And that's all we're asking for. And that would breed more confidence in the referees' reports. Okay, I want to bring another referee in, Katie Coban. You have been a ref with the GAA and involved um, in the game for around 15 years and as a, a rugby referee too um, with the Rugby Union for nine years. So you've really seen it all. Um, and as a female, how bad are things right now? Um, I don't say, honestly, in ladies' football and rugby union and I referee rugby league as well, I don't think there is a discrepancies or a difference between a male or female referee I don't think either side of us are immune to abuse um, or incidences of abuse in games um, I think it's it's a good thing to be able to say there isn't a culture of abuse around ladies football or either of the rugby codes um, but there are definitely incidences um, that I've experienced myself as a referee and I know some of my colleagues have, um, to go back on a point your guest was making there, I think implementation around disciplinary when it comes to these incidences is massive. Um, I know for myself, any of the incidences that I have experienced in former times around GA and LGFA uh, possibly didn't get the disciplinary backup that I would have liked to have seen um, for the offending person. But I know, the, the, I suppose, the benefit that we've had in rugby has been that when it has come push to shove and a report has been put in by a referee, um, the experience I have had with my branch in Connacht has always been full support and backing and appropriate sanction applied to the people who are abusing referees. And it has meant then that we have the confidence to be able to park it and go out the next week knowing that we have backup, yeah. which seems to be the case that our colleagues in soccer federations haven't had. Who's doing the abusing? Is it from players on the pitch or are you seeing it in the sidelines? Um, generally, it's actually coming from sidelines. Um, I suppose it's, it can start early. Um, which I suppose every kid that goes out onto a field, none of them go out with an intention of abusing a referee or 
having verbals with a referee or disputing decisions. They learn it from their parents and their coaches on the sideline. Um, and it's very much a case that when you're at an underage game, the biggest problem that you often have is parents. Um, now, there's been drives through GA and through rugby as well to get silent sidelines. Um, which is a fantastic idea. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a big difference between uh, RF then actually shouting your you-know-what at a ref when they make a decision you don't like. Um, and thankfully, a lot of clubs themselves police their sidelines okay. along rugby sides, so it is helpful, but it does slip through every once in a while. Yeah, I'm really, Jen, you know... Uh, you talk to a lot of parents, parents are coming in for an awful lot of flack, yeah. um, generally around this issue of sideline abuse and, and we're seeing there how it's playing out um, with referees. Uh, what do you think about what's happening? Are you sort of seeing this pitch side and is there a move against it or are, are, is there a general sense that you hear one parent shouting abuse and it kind of just goes on deaf ears. I think, I mean, I was speaking to parents this afternoon and I have children who play sport, all different kinds of sport. And, and I have seen it myself. I have seen even standing on the sidelines and you can stay, feel a little bit frustrated yourself if you hear a parent throwing in their tuppence worth and you're going, so everyone's a referee now. And it might not even be abusive, but even calling out to kids and judging the children on the pitch. And then it, it can kind of escalate from there. But speaking to parents today, there were a lot of parents who said that they had experiences and across all the sports, across soccer, across rugby, across GAD, they had, they'd experienced this. And even from a really young age, from, from children of the, as, as young as six, they were seeing this happen. And you know, it, it means that you have children that are they're confusing passion or aggression with passion because they're seeing and they're hearing this and they're hearing their mums or dads on the sidelines and they're hearing this kind of shouting or they're hearing perhaps when it's coaches sometimes too, they're hearing this and learning that, okay, this is how I react if I really care about the game and it just feeds into each other but it is something that is frustrating an awful lot of parents and an awful lot of mothers in particular got in touch today and said they've been really upset by it their children have been really upset by what they've experienced what they've witnessed they're totally shocked by how quickly things escalate and the behavior that follows harry um you had personal experience of refereeing and you quit it because of the negativity that that you saw what sort of changes do you think need to come about because there are rules in place, there are sanctions um, that Sean's talked about, but there's no real change to the behaviour we're seeing. If anything, it's accelerating. Yeah, unfortunately what happens is this story comes up in headlines every couple of months and we hear about an incident somewhere across the country where a referee has been abused or even assaulted in some cases. And I think what we need to be now doing is, is taking serious action in the form of, you know, one strike and you're out. I don't see a reason why anybody should be involved in any level of underage, like to put this in context, children's football games if they're going to be abusing or threatening to assault a referee. We give a certain amount of leniency here, but at the end of the day, managers and parents are at these games responsible for the well-being and safety of young children, and they shouldn't be allowed to stand there and abuse somebody. There's no other walk of, work, walk of life where the abuse that referees receive would be acceptable. So how, how does that practically happen? Like, when you say one strike and you're out, you're saying someone come over and actually remove that person, um, you know, from... It's from the area I altogether. Think, I, think I, I, mean, that's, I mean, you can just imagine if someone's willing uh, to throw a punch 
how that would go down. Yeah, well, I, I think the situation, not to simplify these things, but it needs to be as if a parent or a manager is going to scream on abuse at a referee, the referee needs to go over, give them a ver verbal warning, match continues, it happens again, they need to abandon the game, go home and give the points to the other team. We, we can't have a situation where we're allowing parents and managers who are violent or abusive to dictate how the game goes just out of fear that they might hit somebody. I think it would be the wrong way to lead and it's, it's a bad example to set for children, as I said. Now, Sean, what do you think of this idea, the idea of one strike and you're out, or that there's more punitive action? Because you say the code is in place, it's just not the being... The code's in place, so if, um, if a referee steps out of line, they can lose their licence with the FAI. So sometimes what's frustrating is maybe, and again, there's some great people, there's some great people behind clubs coaching and giving up all their time, volunteers all week. Uh, getting ready for the game, so and there's a lot of parents really love going to the matches. We're not trying to stop any of that, but if the certain people are being reported by multiple referees for the same behaviour, like a two-match ban or a three-match ban, that's not that doesn't seem to work. So there is possibility, like of maybe you know six-month ban from coaching this not being allowed. And this um, silent sideline idea. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that, that that would be a popular move? Because naturally parents want to encourage their kids. Now, we don't want to get it to the point yeah. of, of the abuse that we're seeing there. But do you think that that's an idea that, that could actually go somewhere? I think there is, and I think there's a lot to be said for it. I mean, yeah, like you're saying there, parents want to encourage their children, but, but it gets out of hand or it can become kind of negative interactions so quickly. And I think a lot of parents would support the idea that their children can play without any comments happening, without any kind of fear. I know there is that feeling with some parents that they have to be present at a match now, just in case something changes, just in case there's an incident on the pitch, just in case a situation goes away that they're hoping it won't. And so the idea of a silent sideline, it might even encourage more children to stay in sports and particularly as they get older, because we know when kids hit the teenage years that there is that drop off and especially amongst teenage girls and maybe that's because it has become so competitive and, and from every angle from the sidelines from the actual sport itself that the fun is being lost at this stage that we're talking about you know one strike and you're out we're talking about having to manage parents and coaches on the sidelines in this manner so maybe it's time to put the fun back into it and the, the silent sideline might help that. Yeah, would this encourage you to have stayed on refereeing? Because you obviously did it for the love of the sport. Yeah. And then it, it didn't quite turn out that way. No, because I think it's a, it's a handful of individuals who are time and time again getting away with the same actions. As Sean pointed out, you know, it's, it's, it's not necessarily loads of different clubs and teams. It's always the same individuals who unfortunately aren't being punished in the appropriate manner. And, you know, I come back to the leagues and the FAI's responsibility for this and creating a culture that unfortunately has turned a small bit toxic. And I think... If the side and sidelines, I actually don't think are going to be strong enough. I, I think we have a really big issue here. I think that we have a problem where people are being not only abused and threatened, they're being violently assaulted at games, at kids' football games. And for some reason, we seem to talk about it, it disappears and we come back to it again. We need to be taking serious action here to, to kick it out of the game. And it might be as simple as side and sidelines, but I think it really needs to be saying that, you know what, it's, it's one strike and you are out and there's no involvement at any level because at the end of the day, they're responsible for well-being and safety of children. They shouldn't be allowed to behave that way. Uh, Sean, we've seen the cancellations this weekend. It's affecting so many games, so many kids participants. Um, is that going to continue on now? Where do you see an end to this? At this particular thing, there's an ongoing meetings. Um, we hope to have something probably resolved fairly soon in the next few days for that part. But the, the big thing, the proof will be in the pudding, as they say. When And it's not just that, that particular league. They took a stance. They were a brave, brave stance, I think, 
in what they've what they called off. But nationwide, we're looking for this. As I said, just use the rules that are there, apply them, and let that bring confidence back. The referees know that they feel that they're being protected, and that's all we want to do. We want the kids to be back playing matches. We want that parents enjoy the games, the whole lot. We're not out. We're not out to stop that. We just want a bit of fair play. Okay, we'll have to leave it there. My thanks to all the panellists who've joined us, to Katie as well, who was with us uh, by Skype tonight. Coming up after the break, medical scientist and Miss Ireland winner, Pamela Uba, will be here. Stay with us. Welcome back. Now, Pamela Uba made history earlier this year by being crowned the first black Miss Ireland. The medical scientist has recently left her job in Galway University Hospital, having worked right on the front line during the COVID-19 pandemic to focus on charity work. And she joins me now. Pamela, you're very welcome along to the programme. Thanks for coming in this evening. I was thinking about you at the start of the programme when we were talking about those COVID infection figures, hospitalisations again being on the rise and that big decision you've made to leave your job um, as a medical scientist in Galway University Hospital. The past two years must have been really something else to be a frontline worker during the pandemic. Yeah, it, it has been such an incredible two years. Um, I suppose it was really hard work for every medical scientist in the country at the moment because, you know, we're, there's very little of us and we had to put in such effort just to band together and set up all those tests to be able to combat this virus in such a short amount of time as well because we were all waiting for this surge and I know it didn't come in the way we thought it was going to come but you know we still had to be prepared for everything and I will say medical scientists all across the country have done a tremendous job and they don't get enough recognition for what we do in the lab because you know we're the ones behind the scenes that actually diagnose people and test your bloods and monitor your treatment progression so I wanted to say well done to all my colleagues for everything they've done the past year or two. Now the reason you're leaving Pamela is because the focus is on your charity work and the role that you've taken up, um, which is very close to home in many ways, and that's working um, with the pro direct provision yeah. service. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and this yeah. um, role as an ambassador that you're now embarking on. Yeah, so I just take, I took a short break um, leading up to Miss World because I'm leaving in the next week to go over there. And I really wanted to take the next two weeks or so to focus on really putting home the charity work that I'm doing. And what I do at the moment, I work as a children's ambassador. That's what I call myself because I really want to make sure the children of Ireland from every background, whether it be special needs or from direct provisions or children in general, you know, get the best opportunity that they can have. And I do this work with Variety, the Children's Charity of Ireland and with Deedon. And they help, um, they're a new social enterprise that want to create better housing situations for people currently living in direct provision centres. Yeah. And for people who may not know, from the age of eight, you came over here from South Africa mm -hmm. and you spent more than 10 years in that direct provision uh, uh, service as you were fighting um, for asylum in this yeah. country. They were really formative years of your childhood that you spent in direct provision. So how was that experience for you? 
it's a struggle for a lot of families and I think only until you've been in that situation and really witnessed what happens it's you can't really understand it you know during my time especially there, there was very limited opportunities and I know that now since the white paper has come in and there's a few things that have changed since then but during my time you, you weren't allowed work there was no opportunities for further education so for me to go to college during that time was an amazing thing in itself because I think I was the only kid in that centre that managed to get to college that year. And in fact you wouldn't have been able to get to college if you didn't win that battle for residency. They're the sort of things yep. that as an asylum seeker yeah. you just can't do. No, 100%. I think my mom was a, a very driving force for that as well because she initially helped me raise, she fundraised the, I think, nine grand at the time for me to go to college. And that was what I had to pay because I was classified as an international student, which I think is very unfair considering I went through primary school and secondary school in, in Ireland. Um, and I think it's something that should have been looked at at that time, especially because we went through schooling here, you know, so without her help, I wouldn't have been able to even initially enter college. And luckily for me, that year was the year we got our residency. And that was through efforts of me writing letters to the ministers and getting my community behind me. Yeah, you took that on as a very personal battle yeah. yourself. You represented your family, yeah. you wrote to those in power, and you said something needs to change here. I'd yeah. say after 10 years, you really felt it that you couldn't go on living like that. No. But do you feel being in direct provision was something that's driven you on? It like has. we see the success you've had, being a frontline worker, high up in science, Miss Ireland, mm. or in a way, is that tag as an asylum seeker something you felt has has held you back in many ways? It held me back in, a, in the sense that it limited the amount of opportunities that I could have gotten at a very early age. Um, but I'm lucky that my journey with that ended when it did. And, and a lot of people wouldn't have that, you know, it would end way later for them. So, but I don't think it held me back as a person because I know who I am and I know what I drive for. And to be honest, going from that experience now, I know that what I need to use my voice is to help people that are still currently going through that experience. And that's exactly what I do. And that's what my Beauty With A Purpose campaign is all about. And especially looking at children who are growing up in that system. Because it's no fault of the children. You know, We don't know any better when we're growing up there. So, you know, to help them, that's the main aim here and their mental health at the end of the day. Mm. And did that little girl in Ballyhonas Direct Provision Centre ever dream of becoming Miss Ireland? Oh my God, um, it was something that would have been so far, far away and I wouldn't have thought it would be possible. Uh, I look at girls that became like Miss Ireland before and you know I, I always admired them and I always wanted to be one of them but I never thought it was achievable for me until I got, got older and really got the confidence and ever since getting my citizenship it was such a proud moment for me and to be able to now go off on that stage and represent my country at a worldwide platform at Miss World is an incredible thing and I'm so honoured and blessed to have that opportunity. Lots of people would support like that great achievement. Others would say the likes of Miss Ireland, it's outdated, you mm. know, for someone who's young, smart, who's made it so far, um, that the, a beauty pageant isn't the best message to send out. What would you say to them? 
Well, I would say just have a look at me and have a look at what I'm doing right now. I'm a medical scientist. I'm advocate for women in STEM. You know, I'm beauty and brains, and I'm using my beauty for a purpose. I, during the past year, I've campaigned to raise money to get upcycled iPads for kids living in direct provision through the help of Variety and ESB. We were able to supply three direct provision centers with iPads during a time when kids were going online for education due to COVID. And not only that, now I'm embarking on a new journey with Dyden, trying to help to see if we can get people better living situations in um, direct provision at the moment. And I'm also currently writing a children's book based on integration. So it's like when people are looking at pageants and saying, oh, they're outdated, but look at the platform that it gives us and look at what we can do as women and for our community, you know, I think it empowers us more than anything. Well, Pamela, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the programme tonight. The very best of luck with the book, with the charity, all the great work you're doing. Um, so thank you for that. Now, finally, and we want to leave you tonight with shoppers in Dublin city centre who were given a treat this evening with, believe it or not, the official switching on of the Christmas lights. The switch was hit remotely. remotely just before seven o'clock from Temple Street Hospital by 15-year-old patient Liam Roach. A number of streets including Grafton Street, Henry Street, South William Street and Capel Street are now looking very festive. In all four kilometres of lights with over one million bulbs have, have been strung up right around the city. A nice note to leave it on. That is it from us. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. Our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning. From all the late team here, good night. Take care. is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com